Welcome back to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. We have a great episode for you this week. Uh, we are joined by ESPN College Basketball analyst Jay Billis. Jay, of course, played basketball for Duke. Uh, I've known Jay for about 15 years now, I guess, ever since I was a freshman at Duke. And Jay is a lot of fun to talk to. He's also a fun follow on Twitter, so give him a follow on Twitter. Our conversation is fairly wide-ranging, but we're going to talk about his early years at Duke and his first memories of Coach K. Uh, We're also going to talk a little bit about his role at ESPN and his work as a college basketball analyst. And of course, the real reason why I wanted to have him on the podcast is to talk about that evil corporation, the NCAA. I am for schools being allowed to pay, and I'm for athletes being allowed to accept compensation in any form. This is a multi-billion dollar business that's professional in every way except how the athletes treat it. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation with Jay Billis. This episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick is brought to you by the European Watch Company. As many of you may know, watches are a passion of mine. I spend many hours a week studying and trying to find the next grail piece for the collection. A company that I love and I am truly enthused to represent on this podcast is European Watch Company out of Boston, Massachusetts. When dealing with rare and important watches, you want to deal with a company you can trust and that represents the product accurately, which is why I love curating my collection with Joshua Ganje, the second generation family at European Watch Company. I love using the European Watch Company app for smartphones. The app is always up to date with the latest editions, including new, pre-owned, and vintage watches from all the top brands, such as Patek Philippe, Rolex, Audemars Piguet, JLC, IWC, Elonga Sun, and way more. With the latest updated inventory ready to be shipped FedEx overnight to your door. You can easily sell or trade your watches by uploading a few photos of your watch through the sell or trade page. I've done this many times with Joshua and it is seamless. As many of you may know, there always comes a time to trade your watch up for the next one. I was looking for an official watch sponsor for the podcast and I was thrilled when Joshua reached out to me for the position. There is no better fit for me. Of course, remember to let Joshua know you are a friend of mine and you heard about European Watch Company through the JJ Reddick podcast to ensure the best deal. Contact Joshua directly to be sure you are well taken care of. His email is easy, joshua at europeanwatch.com and grab the app in the app store or at europeanwatch.com. Whether you're an amateur collector or an addict like myself, European Watch Company will have the watch for your budget. If you're looking for a trusted place to curate or liquidate your collection, look no further. European Watch Company is the place. All right, and we are now joined by this week's guest, Jay Billis. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am honored, JJ. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. As I told you, you are uh, unbelievably good at this. It's really a great listen, Uh, except for this one. I'll I'll drive this down into the ditch pretty quick. No, I doubt that. I doubt that. I actually, I did want to just say thank you for all your support for the podcast. I know you've sent me uh, a few texts uh, of encouragement over the past few months, but you've also been um, a nice supporter of, of this podcast on Twitter. So I appreciate all of the retweets. Uh, that I've gotten from you on Twitter. Well, I do it because I like it, not for any other reason. It's just uh, it's good stuff. You're, you're doing an unbelievable job. You're a natural with this. Oh, I appreciate it. The other thing about Twitter, you uh, you become sort of famous for um, quoting Young Jeezy lines. I think it's Young Jeezy. This morning, it was you, the same one that started up this jewelry game. And when you see him nowadays, his jewelry lame. I got to go to work. Where did this Young Jeezy uh, Twitter tweet thing stem from? 
Well, it kind of started, you know, one, I've been a, a music fan my whole life. And I, you know, it's not like I just listened to, to hip hop or, or rap. Um, I listen to everything. The only, the only thing I don't really care for that much is country music. I mean, I, I listen to a little bit of it, but it, it doesn't move me that much. Um, but when I was in high school, I started listening to, uh, you know, the Sugar Hill Gang and uh, Rapper's Delight and all that stuff. That's when it started back in the late 70s for me. And so, um, you know, I, have, I had all this stuff on my iPod, and uh, we were at Michigan State doing a game day thing. And, uh, you know, players wear uh, headphones now during warm-ups, and Draymond Green was, uh, was at Michigan State at the time, and we asked him what he was listening to, and he said, uh, Young Jeezy. And I think Hubert Davis was kind of joking around with me saying, is that on your iPod too? And I said, actually it is. <laughs> and, uh, and one thing led to another that kind of started happening on Twitter where people were, you know, sort of asking me, this can't be true that you listen to this stuff. And I started shooting out lyrics here and there. Uh, I don't know if they, maybe to prove it, it's not like I had all those things in my head, but, um, if I remember right, uh, I, I had done that a few times going back and forth with some people. And then, I, I I literally had to leave to go to work. Like I had to leave Twitter to go to work, and uh, and I put that in one of the tweets, and it somehow became a thing. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I have a good time with it. But you know, Jeezy may be my favorite, but it's not the only thing I listen to. So two questions then: Jeezy's the the only person you're quoting on these tweets. Yeah. And then you're doing this every day now. Every day, and I've been doing it every day for a number of years, and it got yeah. to the point where. You know, I'd be out on the West Coast or when I'm out doing the Maui, you know, I'd sleep through it and I, my phone would ring and maybe it'd be a friend of mine going, hey, man, what, are you, what happened? Are you all right? And then, I, then that's when I realized, like, this is getting out of hand. I mean, if, if people are, if it's like my, you know, that's how people know if I'm still breathing every day. You're based in, in Charlotte, right? Yeah, I live in Charlotte. I've been so, so when you in say, Los Angeles, but I've been in Charlotte. Yeah, so when you say you're, you're going to work, where are you actually going to work? Well, it, you know, sometimes I, I put it out there and I go back to bed, honestly. But, um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for uh, 24, 25 years, and I'm still with the same firm that I started with called Moore & Van Allen in Charlotte. I was a trial lawyer full-time for about, uh, I'd say, seven, eight years, and then uh, went full-time with ESPN. But my firm asked me to stay, and so I've got this designation called of counsel. So I go into my office every day. But I just do basketball work out of my office for the most part, and there's there's very little legal work that I'm doing these days. When was the last time you actually worked on a case? Um, boy, it's been a while. I've, I do some discrete tasks here and there, sure. Uh, but it's been a number of years where I have kind of you know hoofed it as a lawyer. Um, I I enjoyed practicing law, or at least I thought I did, until I quit. And when I quit and and started doing ESPN stuff full time. God, I felt better and I was happier. And <laughs> I didn't realize how stressful uh, law practice was. It was just what I did. So I didn't, I didn't process that, you know, it was taking a toll on me. And I sound like, you know, I apologize for my voice. I'm, I'm going through a little laryngitis thing that right now. But, you know, it, it, it got to the point where, you know, you do, I was doing two full-time jobs and I couldn't do them both as well as I wanted to. Sure. And honestly, JJ, I just picked the one that was more fun. I just thought, you know what? I, I got a chance to do this full time. Uh, why would I say no to that? And if I screw it up or they fire me or, you know, it doesn't work out, I can always hang my shingle out again and, and be a full time lawyer. And you've had a, an amazing career. I think you've, you've been nominated for two Emmys 
if that's correct. Uh, three now. Do- I'm a three-time oh, loser. Three. Then tell I, someone I, to I update your Wikipedia page. Tell looking. someone to update your Wikipedia page. I need, I need yeah, up-to-date yeah, information, call, man. I call my staff to do that. <laughs> I want to go back. First of all, I didn't I didn't know you were from South Bay. I live in the South Bay. Uh, I didn't know you were from the South Bay. I knew you were from Southern California. But I want to go back. South to, Bay legend, actually. Yeah, first team all South Bay. First team all South Bay in high school. I want to go back to sort of when you were in high school. And, you know, I, I, obviously I'm a Duke guy. You're a Duke guy. But uh, I hear all these stories sort of about your class Coming into into Duke, it was you, Johnny Dawkins, Mark Allery, and Dave Henderson. And really, for Coach K, that was his first big recruiting class and really changed the trajectory of the Duke basketball program. And that, that was his first Final Four was in 1986 as you guys were finishing up. Um, what are some of your earliest memories of Coach K when he was recruiting you in high school? Well, one, I'd never heard of him. So when he started recruiting, it sounds bizarre now, but, but when, uh, when he started recruiting me, I'd never heard of him. I didn't know who he was. So, uh, you know, back then, Duke was, uh, was known for having gone to the 78 Final Four and losing to Kentucky. So with Jaminski, Spinarkle, Banks, Denard, those guys. And I, JJ, I didn't know where it was. Like, I, I, I knew it was in the ACC, but I didn't know what state Duke was in. Uh, I didn't have any idea about the proximity between Duke, North Carolina, NC State, and Wake. Uh, I didn't know any of that stuff. I was a pretty good student of the game as far as history was concerned, but, you know, the geography of it, I, I didn't really know all that stuff. And so when Bill Foster left in 1980, you know, it wasn't on my radar screen who Mike Krzyzewski was. So when he started recruiting me, you know, I, I liked him right away. And I, I kind of had a different sort of view of things coming out of high school. Like I wasn't looking at programs as much as I was coaches. That, you know, I thought that, that going to college, um, that, that might be the only time in my basketball life I was going to get to choose who I played for. And I wasn't going to screw that up. I was going to play for somebody I really liked. And so, you know, rather than schools that came down to me, uh, the last four guys for me were, were Coach K, uh, Jim Beheim, Lute Olson, who was at Iowa at that time, and then uh, Ted Owens, who was the head coach at Kansas. And so it was, for me, it was going to be one of those four guys that I played for. And, uh, and down, to the, you know, down to the wire, it was, you know, I, I was Coach K all the way. And he really didn't have any – the same kind of credentials as everyone else as far as, as success. You know, now you, you got, you know, he's got five national championships and, you know, gold medals and, you know, you can't even count the, the, the accolades and all those things, all the, all the ACC titles and all that stuff. But back then, like, I, I think it's probably fair to say that the first time I ever did anything as a player, Johnny Dawkins or whatever, was his first time too. And, you know, when we went to the Final Four in, uh, in 86 or, uh, when we went to, to our first NCAA tournament, the only guy that had been there before on our team was the trainer. Like nobody else had done it before, so it was it was kind of it was kind of an interesting time. I find that so fascinating because Duke and Coach K. I mean, they're such a brand now where everybody knows about them. First of all, I get that you hadn't heard of them because you hadn't been there a couple of years, but like everybody knows where Duke is. Everybody knows about the Duke UNC thing. And I don't know. We'll, we'll probably get into this more later. I don't know if that's partially just how the college game is marketed and branded now, but but it's such a brand now. When you guys were coming in together, when did you know that your group had something special? Well, kind of right away because uh, we were the number one recruiting class, so you know people thought we were good. And every guy in our class, we were actually six guys back then. 
uh, one of them left. Uh, my my freshman roommate Bill Jackman left and went back home to Nebraska. He was a. We were all ranked in the top fifty, and so we we all had credentials and we're all good. But when I really knew that that we were good was uh, was when I first met Johnny Dawkins and. Like this was, I mean, you're you're younger than me. You're not, I, you know. I still feel like we're peers, but um, there was no internet when when we were in high school, and I didn't know what any of the guys looked like. Um, I didn't know whether they were white or black. I had no idea. <laughs> and uh, and so when um, my family took a when they were going to drop me off at school, my family decided, you know, they'd never been to the East Coast. I was the only one that had had been to the East Coast on recruiting trips. So my parents said, "Hey, let's go. We'll fly to Washington D.C. We'll see the nation's capital, and then we'll drive down to to Durham and drop you off at school." So when Coach K found out about it, he had said, "You know, you need to get together with Johnny Dawkins while you're there." And uh, and so uh, I called them and said, "Hey, look, I'm going to be in town," and uh, and he said, "Well, come on over to my house and we'll go play ball." So my old man drove me over to Johnny's house in in, in Rockville, Maryland, at the time, and. You know, we drove over in our little rental car, and he dropped me off. And, I mean, you know, this sounds like a joke, but it's true. I knocked on the door, and this skinny little dude answers the door, and, and I'm like, hi, is your brother here? And, and he says, well, who are you looking for? And I said, well, I'm looking for Johnny Dawkins. And he goes, that's me. And, I, and, and my, I, honestly, J.J., my first, thought shot, my first thought was, holy shit, we're screwed. Like, really? Because he was skinny and like 6'1 or 6'2, and – he didn't look like what I I expected. I expected like Chris Paul or uh, Darren Williams or somebody like that that was you know big and strong and um, you know unbelievably uh, fast, all that stuff. And and so I was disappointed. And then we got to the playground and like he was Superman. And <laughs> then I was going, okay, like this. I've never played with anybody like this before. He, he was yeah. by far the best player, and it was a good playground by far the best player and it was it was ridiculous how good he was and I was like okay and then I went from being disappointed to going I hope I can hang with this guy because uh, that's how good he was Johnny had uh, one of the best careers of any Duke player was uh, for a long time the leading scorer at Duke and uh, had, a, had a very good NBA career as well I think he had a he had a knee injury about five knee or six injury, years yeah, in. yeah crushed him. I mean that, that was back when when you had a knee injury back then, yeah. you know, now technology is such that you can come back from those. But when a great athlete's athleticism is taken away, and that's what happened to Johnny, he was never the same, but still, had a, still was able to have a, a terrific career in the league because he was so skilled. But like, he was like Iverson before he got hurt. That's the kind of – like we were throwing alley-oops to him at 6-1, and he's dunking these things backwards. Um, it was – you know, you'd watch him play and go – Whoever said all men are created equal is totally full of shit because that's not true. <laughs> that guy's he was unbelievably special. You you've known Coach K now for uh, well over thirty years. I've always sort of said that his greatest strength as a coach is just his adaptability year to year. How have you seen him change over the past few decades as a coach and as a leader and as a teacher? Well, you've seen the same thing. I've just known him for longer. Um, He's, um, and I think the way he adapts is a good way to put it. Like, he just keeps getting better. Like, he doesn't stay, uh, he doesn't feel like he hasn't knocked. Um, He keeps learning and keeps adjusting to the current landscape. Um, You know, back when I played for him, he did everything. Like, he he was not a very good delegator back then. 
So he he man he ran drills. He used he he was doing everything, and uh, and I think he's gotten better at that of of being uh, letting other people do more, and so he can he can sort of be above it and 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 be more perceptive about everything that's going on. Um, and then he's got he's always had, and this was even true back then. Uh, he's always had a gift, I think, and I think it's an incredible gift of taking the complicated and making it simple. And, you know, like when my junior year was the first time the tournament had gone to 64 teams. And I think it was only 54 or 48 teams, whatever it was, then it went to 64. Well, no, 64 teams sounds so big. I mean, you look at the bracket going, my God, you know, how are you going to navigate this thing? And my senior year, he kind of broke it down and made it into, um, he just gave us a smaller bracket and said, look, this is just a four-team tournament that we're going to play this weekend. And, you know, we could wrap our heads around that. And the next weekend when we won, we played another four-team tournament. And then we got to the Final Four. It's a four-team tournament. Now, it sounds simple, uh, and it was, but it took a lot of um, thinking off of our plates, and we could concentrate on, um, on what was in front of us. And it made, it, it made something really big into something really manageable. And he does that with everything. And that, that's, I think that's, that's genius in a way to take the complicated and make it simple. He used to use that with us too. I always found it awesome just to kind of have that in front of you visually to sort of see, okay, there's four teams here. Let's win this mini championship, so to speak. And then we'll get to the next one and, and so forth. I went back to a practice uh, maybe three or four years after I had graduated. I believe it was when Gerald Henderson was still there. And even then, like I remember thinking to myself, man, he, he's coaching these guys differently his tone is different, uh, how he speaks to them, the way he speaks to them, what he's saying to them is different. The emphasis he's placing on things is different. I'm sure it was the same for you. If I had been to a practice, I would have said, man, he, he's, he's much more intense or, he's, he, man, he's really taking control. That's just one example that comes to mind in, in, in sort of my mind. The other one is, is adapting to sort of the landscape of college basketball. And I think that's one thing that he's – consistently done and in the last five years or so you know he's sort of embraced this whole one and done culture where initially maybe he was a little hesitant to do that yeah I think that's right here's how I would uh, you know I would term it like he's been really smart like the values are the same so the the same values that he instilled uh you know team-wise and behavior-wise all that stuff that, that that he had with you guys and today's team is it was the same for us uh, exactly the same. Um, he may have been more likely to, um, with his intensity level, like his volume was a lot higher when I played for him than probably when you did, and, it, and it's way different now. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I go to all these practices, and a lot of the coaches, all uh, they'll have a, a little team meeting or something or watch film before practice starts. And so some places, you know, I just have to sit on the floor and wait for him to get out. Other places, the coach will go, hey, come on back and watch film with us. So Coach K does, you know, says, hey, come on back and watch film. So I'm sitting in the back while he's going over film with the team. And I think it was Mason Plumley. Mason Plumley's a freshman. And so I can see on the film, all right, he's about to get it. And I start having these Vietnam flashbacks, like I'm starting to sweat, because I was in that position going, here it comes. And, you know, like he's going to wear this guy out because he, you know, he wore me out. He wore you out. He wore, he wore some of us out. And, uh, uh, and it was not pleasant. 
And and he says to, to Plumlee, he stops the tape and he goes over it and he says, Mason, I've never had a good player do this. And he said, if you want to be a good player, this has got to stop. But when he said, I've never had a good player that does this, and he was stern about it, but he didn't raise his voice. Like that to me, like I felt, I felt how harsh that was and how, how uh, penetrating, I shouldn't say harsh, penetrating that was. And it was way more penetrating than if he'd yelled at him. Does that make sense? Like yeah. it was profound. And there, there are times now where I'm listening to him talk and I'm taking notes and then I'm saying, was he this profound when I played for him, or is I just too stupid to realize it? Like, um, <laughs> so he, he's at a whole nother level, I think now, and that's one of the things like that I'm really, really like excited for. Uh, and this is not true of of uh, this is true of other coaches, not just Coach K, but you know. So you're you're going. The players today are playing for a better coach than you played for, and a better coach than I played for, yeah. and that's really cool. Like, I think that's really freaking cool that he keeps getting better. And uh, and it gives me a little hope that maybe in my job I can keep getting better and keep having good years, and maybe I'll have my best year when I'm older. Uh, it, so that, that's been kind of inspiring for me to watch that. I know he, he, he coached every guy differently when I was there. In other words, whether it was uh, discipline, encouragement, you know, I, he he never really yelled at me because he never had to yell at me, if that makes sense. And but but when he would say something to me that he wanted to get across that was sort of profound, it stung in a way that nothing else could ever sting. I remember after my sophomore year, he said to me, "We didn't win a championship because you weren't worthy of being a champion," and that hurt me more than anything else that he could have said to me. I mean, it really did. The other thing I think for his sort of adaptability was getting to coach the Olympic team and getting to coach the pros, I think was was really, really great for him. And I, I use this phrase, you've never arrived, you're always becoming. And when I heard, first heard the phrase and I started thinking about it and how it pertained to my own life, like the guy that I always kept coming back to about who embodied that more than anyone else was Coach K. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I think the Olympic thing kind of re-energized him uh, in a way that uh, that you know you know how it is. Like you you do things for a certain amount of time, and he's done it for a ton of time as a coach at Duke, and and it can it can become routine. And that was that was an energizing thing where he was yeah. dealing with something on a whole different level. Like I was just out in Utah. Uh, actually, I watched you play the other night. Um, just out in Utah visiting Quinn Snyder, who's a you know former teammate of mine and one of my great friends. I just wanted to spend a couple of days with him and you know kind of watching the whole NBA thing and uh, and the the level like people who are, are just basketball fans. I don't think have any idea um, the level uh, the how complicated uh, uh, an NBA game is yeah. and how how much goes into it. And it is, it's, it's incredible. And I would put it up with the NFL as far as level of detail. Now, the difference is you guys don't have committee meetings in between, you know, each play uh, where you can, you know, uh, sit and talk about things. You've got to play offense and defense continually, and there's so much going on. It happens so fast. But I, I think going to that level and seeing all that and watching the, the level of prep that the players do, um, and, and the coaches and all that stuff, I think it was really helpful to him. It's not that he didn't know it already. He couldn't handle it. But I think it was stimulating for him because it's, 
it's a higher level, man. It's unbelievable. And so for, uh, you know, for him, I think it was a really energizing thing. And, and he, is he better because of it? You're damn right. He's better. He's way better. Um, but, but he went in there and put his own stamp on it and handled it. Great. Uh, you know, won everything. And, and, uh, but I think more than anything, that was a, uh, an inspirational thing for him that has made him more energetic than less. It didn't wear him out. It, it elevated his sort of his energy level, uh, more than anything I can, I can remember. You're listening to the vertical podcast with JJ Reddick. It's the MMQB Podcast with Peter King. What was it about building teams that kind of now got you really interested in it? Well, I mean, I think as a competitor, you never lose that. You never lose being a competitor. I mean, that's built in. And I don't care what line of business you're in. To me, if you're a competitor and you like to compete, you're going to be successful. For the rest of this conversation with John Elway, please search the MMQB podcast with Peter King to listen and subscribe to new and archived episodes found on the MMQB.com, iTunes, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Jay, hang on one second. I need to ask my listeners a quick question. How would you like to get three home-cooked meals for free? Well, all you have to do is remember these two letters, JJ. That's easy enough, right? Now keep listening, and I'll tell you how to get those free meals. Look. We all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal, and no one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients, all right to your door. Even better, each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Now comes that part about the three free meals I was telling you about. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash JJ. Think about it. That's three meals free just by adding in my name. Once again, that's blueapron.com slash JJ. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Now back to my conversation with Jay Billis. Going back to what you were saying about the NBA game, I... It sounds so simple because we are playing a game that just involves like a leather ball and, and, and an orange rim, but the level of intellect that is required to succeed at this level is very high. And, and it's funny because we're talking about basketball when I have discussions with teammates on the court or let's say a film session with, with our defensive coordinator or whatever it may be, but it, it is actually very intellectually stimulating and the other thing I wanted to ask you about with Quinn and, and with your class of guys, like the sort of the Duke fraternity. Uh, I had a reporter last year ask me about like, you know, what other Duke guys I was friends with. And when I thought about it, I, I thought to myself, like, I don't know that there's a guy over the last 25 or 30 years that I don't have some sort of relationship with a, a former Duke player. Like, it just seems like you're in that fraternity and you're in it for life and we all kind of coexist and co-mingle and get along. Yeah. I think part of it, one of it has to do with the length of time our coach has been there. Yeah. So if, if coach K had left Duke after oh, 10 years or after he won his second championship or something and went to the NBA, which was a distinct possibility in the early nineties, you know, I probably never would have met you. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, if you had, even if you had gone to Duke, yeah. You know, the, 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 some coaches, they come in, they've got their own guys, they want the former players to come back, but it's not a priority. 
you know, you don't feel the same way about your school because the guy you played for is not there anymore. Um, so there's been a continuum there, and there's been that one. So he's like the hub of the wheel, you know. So uh, for me, you know, I'm 52 years old now, and my coach is still where I played. You know, very few guys from my era or vintage, whatever you want to call it, that can say that. Maybe the guys that went to Syracuse, that's about it. Right. And, uh, and so that's, that's helped us develop uh, and maintain relationships over that period. Uh, and that's been really important. The other thing is, in my, in my view, is, you know, when, you know how it is, when you recruit good guys, and we like to think that when he, he recruited us, he get, we got good guys. Yeah. If you, get, if you get a guy that's not a good guy into the program, they get weeded out right away. And so, um, you know, good, you, you recruit good guys, and that attracts more good guys. And, you know, you'll, you'll find that, um, you know, when, when guys come on their recruiting visits, they get to know the players, they're, they're attracted not just to Duke or Coach K, but they're attracted to the other players. They go, you know, I, I, I want to be, be that guy's friend. I want to play with that guy. You know, I want to be like that guy. And, and that stuff happened, and then all of a sudden you got – uh, older guys, and I know this happens in the NBA, but it's more transient. Uh, you got older guys that are kind of training the younger guys, not not overtly, yeah. but you know, if 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 I'm a young player and I'm I come in as a sophomore, or freshman, sophomore, where you're a junior, senior, and I and I get to watch the way you do things, you don't think that's going to have an impact on me? It's going to have a huge impact on me. The way you handle yourself off the court, the amount of preparation you put in, uh, how you eat. All the stuff that you do, um, you know, that's going to have a profound impact on your teammates. And I always tell parents now, you know, when in, when you're helping your kid make a decision on where to go to school, you got to look at the locker room and say, okay, what are the guys like in that locker room? And historically, what have they gone on to do? What kind of people have they gone on to become? Because, you know, the basketball is one thing, what position your kid's going to play, you know, are they going to go to the tournament, all this stuff. It's great. It's important. But the other part of it is you put your kid in a locker room full of knuckleheads. Don't be surprised when a knucklehead comes home for Christmas with you. <laughs> you know, like who they're around every day is a, is a big deal. And, uh, you know, you may not be a different person, uh, uh, but your, your character will be molded in a more positive way based upon who you're around all the time. And you're not you're just not just saying this about Duke. You're saying about this Everywhere. about any any sort of college program is to to sort of look in the locker room. Well, I don't want to good point, JJ. Yeah. Like, cause, you know, like we're two Duke guys talking about Duke, and it can sound yeah. like an infomercial, but yeah, I, I don't want to stray too far into like the Duke propaganda machine. Yeah, but 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 it's, <laughs> like you know the the same way like the guys at Carolina. If you talk to Hubert Davis, sure. when Dean Smith passed away, you know I had a chance to get to know Coach Smith. But when you heard the guys talk about Coach Smith and what he meant to them and the things that he used to do daily in practice, you know, Duke fans may not want to hear this. Carolina fans may not want to hear it either. But the difference between Duke and Carolina culturally is very slim. I mean, we, you know, the, the two programs basically have recruited the same guys forever. Right. And, and the, 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 guy, the Carolina guys that, that Duke fans hated, you know, Duke might have been the guy's second choice. And they would have loved him. And the Duke guys they loved, if they had been at Carolina, they would have hated them. And, uh, and that's, that's part of the gig. But character-wise, like, you know, I, I know you're friends with, with, with a lot of the guys that went to Carolina. I am, too. Um, I, mine are, my, my vintage is older, but, you know, Hubert Davis I worked with. I mean, there, there's no difference in, in, in the players character-wise, none. I have two guys in my locker room right now that are Carolina guys and both both outstanding individuals. 
Not surprising, though, because as I've seen over the last 15 years since I first got to Duke, I mean, these are the type of people that Carolina recruits. And your current job as, as a college basketball analyst, I had Jay Williams on the podcast. I didn't ha- ask him this question. I wish I had. But do you find it a challenge sometimes to be unbiased when you do have to talk about Duke? I don't. I don't. Um, my thing has always been say what I see um, and what I feel, and I'll have no problems. So when Carolina's the better team, uh, you say it. When, when uh, Roy Williams does a better job, you say it. Uh, you don't have to worry about it that way. And for me, like one of the great joys of the job has been you know, getting to go to practice, to scouting reports that, that all these different teams have, being their coaches' meetings. And when you see, or at least this is, this is you know, what I, the conclusion I've come from, when, when you see what these players and coaches put into it, how much they care, um, how could you go to those games and, and do it any, anything but down the middle? And plus, I'm older now. Uh, so, um, you know, I've been to a thousand games. I've seen a thousand of these things. I'm not rooting. You know, I, the only thing I root for is a good game. Like, I, I want to have a good game. Because uh, if it's a 20-point blowout, no matter who wins, you know, you know TVs are turning off and people are changing <laughs> the channel. So you want to have a good game because it's more fun that way. Yeah. But I've never worried about, you know, who wins, who loses, all that stuff. That, that's their problem. Uh, and now, now, you know, truth be told, like if, if you know, maybe if uh, Duke were struggling and Coach K was about to get fired, you'd feel like, oh, my God, you know, maybe I need to, maybe I need to say something helpful. But I broadcast games of, of my best friends, and uh, whether it's Johnny Dawkins or Tommy Amaker, you name it. Yeah. And both those guys were in situations in their careers where they got let go. And, you know, I, I never did or said anything other than exactly what I felt at the time. So I, I've never worried about it. That's never been an issue for me. Sure. That's fair. The other the other thing that I think is kind of cool that you get to do in your job is that you get to work on, on draft night on ESPN's uh, special. And you've done that for a number of years. And, uh, you know, you provide your analysis. There's I think there's an ongoing like Internet thing about your your use of the word length. But are you are you ever surprised by sort of who makes it, who doesn't make it, what translates and what doesn't translate from the college game to the NBA game? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm 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 not surprised by it anymore. I'm I, I was initially surprised that um, that it was so hard to figure out. You know that you got all the measurables, and you know I, I did learn pretty early that nobody's got a magic eye. That you know your decisions become better based upon, and your judgments become better based upon the amount of work you put in, and the amount of t- the amount of times you've seen guys and and studied you know the analytics and all these different things. So the more time you put in. You know, the more the more hits you have rather than misses. But um, I've gained a greater appreciation for how difficult the job of, of being a GM or scout is and trying to make the right call. And, look, my job is not anywhere near as difficult uh, as, as any GM. Um, but what you find is, or at least what I've found, is I've got a – you know, my opinion is out there on every player in the first round, every single one. You know, a, a team – has their opinion out about the ones they draft. Now they've got opinions on all of them, mm-hmm. but you know, so they're stuck with the ones that, that they draft, and it's and it's difficult. Sometimes you make a mistake, and it stays on your resume forever. So you know, like I, I got to live with what I say about these players, and yeah. if I'm wrong, I gotta I gotta suck it up and accept it. 
And so I can't, but I, but I don't want to be pulling punches on uh, and getting all mealy mouthed on the air and, and saying, well, this could go either way. You know, you never know and all that stuff. You got to say what you think. And, uh, and sometimes, you know, hopefully I've been right more often than wrong, but, uh, but I have learned that, um, you know, I, I have to be really mindful, not just of the content of what I say, but the tone in which I say it. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, that, that's important too, because, um, sometimes the tone that you use, it can convey the, the, the wrong message to the listener. Sure. And, and the other thing from like a player's perspective, you know, I think, especially at that age, like you're very cognizant of everything that's said about you, if that makes sense. You're just not, I don't think you're mature enough to sort of filter out what's important and what's not important. And I just can think on my own draft night, like I just had a DUI and that's, that's all anybody wanted to talk about, like on air, right? That I just had this DUI. And so it kind of took some of like the joy of that night away from me. Like instead of feeling just like super excited and it was just almost like a sense of relief, like, oh God, this is over. Okay, I can move on with my life. And and so I think sometimes, like from a player's perspective, like you don't you don't want that night to be ruined by negativity, whether it's saying like, I don't think this is a good pick for them or, you know, we give this grade a C. Like we we hear that. We hear that. And I think there almost needs to be like more of sort of a celebration, I guess, of of what's happening. Because for us, like it's it's the it's the most important moment of our lives up to that point. Yeah, and, and I try to balance that. Yeah, you know, there there are two competing interests there. One, it it's big boy school. So yeah. Oh no 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 question no question. That. Yeah. And and then the other and I know you know that, but then the yeah. other part of it is it, it is a it is a big deal and it is a, a, a celebratory time. So for me, that there are times when, but there are times when. Um, I, I'm very cognizant of that. I try to stay cognizant of it all the time. But the other part of it is if you, if you say, okay, well, uh, so-and-so has got a, has got a problem that, that it isn't just a momentary lapse in judgment type deal, but, but got a problem. And you know that, Hey, someday this is going to, people are going to look back on this and go, why did you give this guy ice cream and, and balloons at, at the draft when, and, and later on he turns out to be a problem. Um, you know, you kind of have to, yeah. you kind of have to, to do both. And that's my thing about tone. Like my yeah, biggest mistake, yeah. I think in the draft over the years, wasn't just, you know, Hey, I, I had this guy ranked higher or whatever, or I didn't, didn't have this guy as a first rounder. He turned out to be, be some great all-star. Um, when Josh Smith got drafted years ago, um, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was a top five talent, got drafted number 17. And I, I look back, I don't regret one thing I said in my analysis of Josh Smith when he was drafted. I regret the tone that I used because it, it sounded angry. And I, what did I have to be angry about? I wasn't angry. <laughs> and so the tone made it sound like I was bashing the kid. Yeah. And, and I wasn't. Um, I, I was... You know, I, I had a serious message about him, and it sure. wasn't all positive, um, uh, but it was. It sounded way, way harsher than it should have. And so later on, uh, years later, when I was making a similar point about Demarcus Cousins, I did, I did a way better job. Mm-hmm. And then I talked to Demarcus before that. Like I, I, you know, I knew him. I worked with him in high school, so I was able to tell him beforehand. Listen, when you get drafted, this is this is what I'm going to say. Yeah. And so I was able to kind of let him know, like, don't take this the wrong way, and I'll make sure I do this, I'll say it the right way. Um, but I wanted to let you know beforehand. 
And and I think that 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 was a great lesson for me. I mean, I'm sorry I I made what I consider to be a mistake with Josh Smith, but um, uh, you know, it really it really was a, a learning curve for me. And I think I've I've done a much better job since then. This is the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Jay, as someone who's on television all the time, like me. We're always in need of a quality suit, and I need to tell my listeners about Indochino. Indochino is reinventing men's fashion. You can customize the details you want, pick your lining, lapels, personal monogram, and more. There's 14 unique measurements that go into making a suit that fits you perfectly. You can't go wrong with the well-crafted 100% merino wool suit. Also, check out Indochino's made-to-measure dress shirts and men's accessories. Made-to-measure suits are now affordable and available to the masses thanks to Indochino. When you look good, you'll feel good, and you'll feel confident. Your look, your way. So here's the deal. The code is JJ, and there's a money-back guarantee. Today, my listeners get any premium suit for just $399. That's up to 50% off at Indochino.com when entering JJ at checkout. Plus, shipping is free. There's no reason not to try your first custom-made suit with a deal this good and a suit classic from their premium collection will look good, feel good, and last. That's Indochino.com. Use the promo code JJ for any premium suit for just $399 and free shipping. Indochino, your look, your way. Now back to my conversation with Jay. If there's one characteristic or trait or just attribute that you think is maybe weighted more in terms of determining a player's career arc or, or, or success in the NBA, sticking power, let's call it. Uh, what is that? I mean, obviously, like I always say, like, listen, you can be the grittiest person in the world, but if you can't make a jump shot and you can't guard anybody, you're not going to play in the NBA. So talent aside, is there one thing that you say like, oh, that's, you know what, that kid has it. He's going to be fine in the NBA. Character. And I know that's a hard one to wrap your arms around. But it's one of those things where you may not be able to define it in every instance with a player, but you know when you see it. And if a guy's got uh, strength of, of, of character, both athletically and, and, um, and otherwise, uh, that's when you know that he's going to make it. Now, it, it, and you know, like, you know what, this guy will not fail. And, uh, you know, I, honestly, I felt that about you. Um, there have been a whole bunch of players but you know, you know, you're right on the, uh, you're hitting it right on the head with like, look, if character was the only thing, then Mother Teresa would have been the number one pick. Like, it doesn't, yeah. you got to be yeah. able to play. Yeah. But there are, as you know better than I do, there are a bunch of guys that can play their tails off that wash yeah. out because they don't have that uh, character and athletic character. And sure. so, you know, being in the NBA as long as you have, I don't have the same kind of uh, knowledge as you do, but. I can tell you, you know, all the time when I'm around NBA teams and NBA people, they're talking about how great of a, a, a team guy so-and-so is and, and how, how valuable that is to any winning organization. And I count that in the, in the character side that, you know, if you've got that, uh, your talent will find a way. If you don't have that, then I don't think, uh, you know, I, don't, I think your talent can be limited by that, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. Actually, somebody once said to me, uh, I think it was actually Chris Collins. He said, if you're going to be an asshole, your talent better outweigh your assholeness. That's sort of a, just a, a basic guideline, I think. And, and you see it in the NBA. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's guys that um, 
you know, behave a certain way, but they're, they're so freaking good that it, it really doesn't matter. And, and they have such a great sort of value add to the team that, you know, you just, you, you just kind of deal with it. You suck it up and deal with it. I, I want to get to sort of a, a discussion about the NCAA. There's a lot to talk about and a lot to chew on. So I'm trying to, I'm, I want to keep this as focused as possible, but um, just in terms of athletes being paid, I know you're, you've been a huge proponent for the student athlete, not just for pay for play, but just in terms of transfer rules and some of the hypocrisy of the NCAA, but where, where exactly do you stand on the notion of pay for play in the NCAA? I am for um, schools being allowed to pay, and I'm for athletes being allowed to accept compensation in any form. And this is the way I look at it, JJ, that this is a multi-billion dollar business that's professional in every way except how the athletes treat it. So we can't look at football, basketball, the like, and suggest with their multi-billion dollar television deals and the way they, you know, the conference deals for TV, Big Monday, you know, the college football playoff, the NCAA tournament, act like it's not, it's not pro, it's pro. Um, <laughs> but it, so my thing would be, let every, let every school do what they want to do. Like if, if, cause you hear people say, well, I'm totally against that. Then don't pay at your school. You know, like I don't hear people say they're against, like if this was back when I was playing, I don't know what coach K made when I was playing, but I would imagine it was, you know, under a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, he's making $7 million now or more. You know, so if Duke doesn't want to pay that, then don't pay it. That's fine. You know, they, they can they can pay less, but that's their choice. And the other part of it is that no other student, like this has nothing to do with education. It has nothing to do with, uh, with them being students, with the players being students. The NCAA says it is, but it's not. Because if, if money got into the, in the way of education or was somehow, as they say, antithetical to what education is about – then they would limit what any student could earn or any scholarship student. So if you're on a music scholarship, you can cut a record. You can appear on the Tonight Show. You can make money however you want. If you're an actor or actress, you can do whatever you want, make whatever. It doesn't affect your status as a student. So no other student is limited any, in any way. So that, that's my stance is that, that you know, why would we um, you know, have, a, have a, a unilateral wage ceiling on only one class of person, that being an athlete. That doesn't make any sense to me. And to me, the, the only way to do it is allow the schools to make their own decisions. So if, if Duke wants to, you know, kind of like one and done, you don't want to take one and done, don't. But if you want to take them, go ahead. That's fine. Um, you know, they're, they're, we, we don't need to have these restrictions on everybody like we're running, uh, like we're running a little league. And, and, you know, because we're not, we're making billions of dollars here and the coaches are making a ton. The administrators are making a ton and they're selling these ki- these players at every turn, every single turn. It's amazing. Yeah. I guess the notion of the NCAA being an amateur sport really, it, it, I mean, it's just, it's just a non-starter for me. And I mean, not only do we have like the, the March Madness TV deals, bowl game TV deals, we now have conference networks, some schools. I think University of Texas has their own network. So there's there's sort of all these revenue streams. I want to I want to reference a couple of articles. I, I read Business Insider all the time, and and they've kind of done this playful thing where both in college football and in college basketball, they've divvied up the revenue similar to how the 
NFL and, and NBA divvy up the revenue between the owners and the players. And and what they found was, I think there was an article actually today, this morning, about college football. And I think the average Texas Longhorns football player is worth about $675,000 to the school. In the basketball version that they they wrote last year, I think there were four schools. Duke was one of them where the average basketball player at Duke was worth over a million dollars to the school. And obviously there's a huge discrepancy there between, you know, the that amount and and what the scholarship is, what room and board covers. And the NCAA in the last few years, I guess the I, I should say the big five, I believe, have come up with this sort of cost of attendance stipend. You're you're definitely saying that's not far enough. They haven't gone far enough in sort of making this a fair system. Well, yeah, I mean, it's inherently unfair when there's a restriction on on one class of person and no one else. I mean, you know, I say that the players are exploited and people recoil from that because it sounds, you know, that they, they, they think that makes it sound sinister. And it's not. It's just a simple it's a it's simple definitional thing that when when you are using someone to make money and to profit and, and the, look, these people are profiting. They call themselves nonprofit, but they're profiting enormously. But when you use someone to profit and at the same time restrict them from profiting themselves, that's textbook exploitation. Now, it doesn't mean they're mistreated, but you, you'll hear people say, well, they get free food and, uh, and, and free gear and, and they go on great road trips and look at they get all this wonderful coaching, you know, as if, as if they would go out and pay for that on their own. And uh, and you're going. Wait a minute. Now those things are all incidental to this multi-billion-dollar business. I mean, you're you're getting coached so you'll perform and win. You're getting fed so that you will um, you'll you'll have a, a you'll be fueled better to perform at a higher le- higher level and win and make more money. And they act like this free gear thing, <clears throat> like they're giving all the players a gift certificate to Dick's Sporting Goods. And they can buy whatever they want. They're billboards. Yeah. So they have to wear that gear. And look, it's nice and everything, but the paid coaches get the gear, the paid administrators get the gear, and they get to go on the road trips and you know, they they're flying on the on the the the, the charter. Um, you know, so it, it, it those things are all excuses and rationalizations. And my thing is, well, you know, if you think the scholarship is such a great deal cuz cuz people say, well, well, the players get enough. Okay? First of all, I would ask to whom else do you say that? To what other person or group do you say you get enough and you need to be capped industry wide? And 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 the other part, JJ, is if you think it's enough, and that's not an unreasonable thing to think, but if you think it's enough, then uh, let that deal stand on its own in the marketplace. Like we'll have a free market, and if Duke doesn't want to give scholarships or doesn't want to pay players, don't do it, and then see how you do. Because they're not averse to paying because they're paying Coach K seven or eight million a year. And they're not averse to paying money for facilities, which they're doing for recruiting. So they're paying the money one way or the other. You know, it's just I think it should be allocated properly for talent procurement. You know, let it go to the players where it belongs instead of building these gigantic facilities to attract them um, and, and pretending that you're doing everybody a big favor. I just I've never liked it. You're listening to the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. Jay, hold tight for one second. Give me a minute to tell my listeners about SeatGeek. As a lot of you may know, buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. 
But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. SeatGeek is always the first place I go to to look for tickets to a game or concert. I had the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I just used it the other day to look for tickets to see the Dodgers in the postseason. Everything about SeatGeek is designed to make life easier for sports and music fans. SeatGeek does all the price comparison for you by searching multiple ticket sites and ensuring that you get the best possible deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, my listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get your $20 rebate on tickets, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code, enter promo code JJ. SeatGeek will then send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code JJ today. Now let's get back to Jay Billis. The the other thing about sort of the, the athlete being able to earn money, a really frustrating thing. The, the, an example would be what happened with Todd Gurley. So like my senior year at Duke, I, I think someone told me that, that my senior year at Duke, I think there were f- around 5,000 Nike jerseys of mine that were sold in the Duke University bookstore alone. And those jerseys went for like $100 a pop or whatever. So roughly half a million dollars. Like, I didn't get to see any of that money, but the school, of course, with their licensing agreement, got to see some money. Nike, of course, got got to see some of that money. But if I wanted to go, like Todd Gurley, if I wanted to go sign my jersey and sell it on the open marketplace, I would then be punished. That, to me, is like, it's like going an extra step to just keep the athlete down. Like That, to me, is even more frustrating that you can't actually, okay, you don't want to pay me, but... I actually have value and I can't go out into sort of the secondary marketplace and earn money that way either. Yeah. I mean, and the contradictions are endless with that kind of thing that they're using you to sell and to make money, including your autographs. Um, And if you do something like that, then all of a sudden you're made to look like a criminal and, and it's a, you know, amateurism is a total sham. I mean, it was, the the concept of amateurism really uh, comes from you know old England and and it, it, some people think it goes back as far as the ancient Greeks but really what it was was the elites did the moneyed elites did not want to play against the common man and so by by you know making it an amateur endeavor the common man couldn't afford to play and so that's why you had all the uh, when the NCAA started. You know, the amateur ideal came from all the, you know, the handlebar mustache elites in the Ivy League. And uh, that's where it came from. And, you know, if it were truly amateur, like I think the only thing that's amateur in, uh, in this country is golf. And, you know, amateur golf, how often do you see that on TV? They're not selling that. And there are no multi-billion dollar contracts for amateur golf tournaments. Amateur golfers decide, and pardon my voice, but amateur golfers decide if they will practice at all and if they'll play. So U.S. amateurs coming up, amateur golfer says, you know, I don't feel like playing this summer. I'm busy. I don't want to do that, or I'm not going to practice. I'm only going to play in a couple tournaments. I'm going to kind of take the summer off. Uh, Or I'm not practicing leading up into these events, or I'm only practicing a little bit. You think we were deciding when we wanted to practice? Or if we're going to play, right. you're not deciding any of that crap. You're going. Like, you know, if I said, well, I'm an amateur. I don't really feel like going to Clemson this week. You're going. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's a business, and it's a job. It's a great job. I loved it. 
I was grateful for my scholarship, yeah. but it wasn't enough. And, you know, gratitude and money are not mutually exclusive. Like, you're, you're making a very good living as a professional basketball player right now, and, uh, and you're a very grateful person. That has yeah. nothing to do with getting paid. Right. You know, it's business. And the, the other thing that I hear all, you know, you kind of hear all the time is, well, it's, a, it's voluntary. If you don't like it, go pro. You're like, well, it's not voluntary. You know, everything's voluntary. Like, what, <laughs> what, what in America is not voluntary? But, you know, what they've done is they're tethering something to, to sort of a, an institution in our country where if you want education and you love to play basketball, that's what you do, you don't really have a choice but to go to college. And not a real choice. It's, it's what I would consider a false choice. So they've taken the whole industry and they've closed it off for athletes to make any money. And, you know, your choice to go to pro is another market. Like, they don't tell the coaches, well, you guys are all making $100,000. We're capping your salary at $100,000. If you don't like it, go pro. That's an antitrust violation. And, uh, and they'd, get, they'd get crushed for that and have gotten crushed for trying to limit coach pay in the past. Um, so, look, the, the courts have, have propped up the NCAA in this. I think the courts have been wrong. It's starting to change. But until the players protest, until they start boycotting, um, we're not going to see – it's going to be glacial pace of change. The players have to basically say we're not playing. And I think it would be easy for basketball to do. And I've said this publicly, so it's not like I'm – I'm, uh, you know, letting some out of the bag here. But, but if I were, if I were playing now and I had the guts to do it, because, you know, the current players aren't going to see the money from protesting. It, it'll be later, later generations of players. But could you imagine if you went out on the court, like if you had a game, uh, say Duke and Georgia Tech are playing, you go out on the court, you, you've communicated with the Georgia Tech players, you guys go out and shake hands for the opening tip. And then you all walk off to the practice facility and the managers have it set up and, you know, you're going to play and play your tails off uh, and the game, you know, the game's going to count, but you go in there and, and the, what, what are the officials going to do? Not go? Or, or are the coaches not going to go? Are they going to order you to play in, 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 on the Cameron floor? That would be a really powerful statement where you don't have to boycott playing, but you don't have to play where – sort of you're being showcased and it would really affect the contracts and the money involved and and the players could show their economic power in that i, I think that's going to happen <clears throat> again pardon my voice i think it's going to happen i just don't know when yeah well the NCAA, i feel like they have to have a, a reason to change there's got to be some sort of incentive or motivation and if the courts aren't going to do it then it's got to come from another source and i mean i your idea makes total sense i mean it does have to come from the players I want to go going back to what you said earlier about being grateful. Like, I, I think I think you're right. I think it's not like exclusive or not inclusive, whatever it like. I was grateful for my time at Duke, but I don't know that my scholarship was enough. I, I use this example all the time. My senior year, my roommate sort of got, um, you know, I'd be dismissed from our team. Uh, so I went to go live off campus. I was living on campus with him. And so I had to go get a one bedroom apartment off campus and my scholarship check didn't cover my rent. Uh, so my parents took out a personal loan. The day after I got drafted, we were at lunch in Orlando and my mom handed me an invoice uh, of the money that I owed from the personal, you know, from the loan they took out to pay my rent. And of course I'm, I'm at Duke. I'm, you know, I'm on TV all the time. My Jersey's selling out everywhere. 
you know, the, the, the scholarship check wasn't enough. And, and I was certainly grateful for my scholarship. I was certainly grateful for my time at Duke, but it wasn't enough. The second thing I wanted to say was like, I don't want to get political on here, but like with gun control, like times have changed. And so, you, you know, you can't advocate for not having gun control based on, you know, laws that were from the 1700s. You know, things have changed. Our world has changed in the last 30 years, just like the NCAA has changed. You, you brought up the history of the NCAA. Like there weren't billion dollar contracts in the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1940s, but there are now. So, so let's figure out a way, and I don't know what it looks like. I don't know the dollar amount, of course, but I, I like your idea of a free market. But let's figure out a way where it makes sense in, in today's world, where it makes sense now. Yeah, and they won't do it because they know where their money's coming from. And my argument is, look, you opened up Pandora's box when you started selling uh, these things for billions of dollars. Like, I don't think anybody would be complaining. It certainly wouldn't be me if – Division one was run like Division two and Division three, where you know you had uh, salaries were in line with the state admission, and uh, you know we could do that, but they don't want to give up their money. Like the coaches, like the coaches, it always burns me when coaches complain about the players today being entitled, and you're saying what? So the unpaid players are entitled, and then you guys are making five, six million bucks a year. And, and the players are entitled? Like, you got to be kidding me. And, like, when they say, well, you know, I wish we could go back to the old days where the players were like this, this, and this. And I said, well, you don't want to go back to the old days when you made 50 grand, do you? Like, you know, it's totally different now. Yeah. And like you're saying, and this is big business. And my yeah. thing is if yeah. they're old enough to sell, like they want to say they're kids. Well, if they're old enough to sell, they're old enough to benefit from their work. And, uh, and you know, when every other student is allowed to benefit in, in their chosen field, benefit to the level of their value in the marketplace, I don't see why we would tell one class of student that they can't do that, and uh, that being the athlete. And, look, I understand the reflexive uh, argument of, of, of fans that say, well, screw those guys. Like, I paid for college. Let them go out and get a job like I did. Let them have all this debt. Well, you know what? Like, with all due respect, to whom else do you say that? Nobody. Like, you're not saying to the music student that gets a full scholarship, hey, you know, I'd love to trade places with you, so you shouldn't get what you're getting. They don't do that. They only do that with an athlete. And I, I, I don't like it. I think it's wrong. And I think it's when you're selling people for this amount of money and you're not allowing them to benefit to the level of their value – I think it's wrong, actually, to the point of being immoral. And But, you know, most people are looking at this like, come on, man, don't get in the way of my games. Like, all I want to do is watch the games. And like, O'Bannon, okay, great. Now I don't have video games to play. Like, they, they actually look at it that way. They're going, you know, they, they're looking at it like, I can't play a video game now because Ed O'Bannon proved that the NCAA violates federal antitrust law. You know, they, they're unhappy about it. Yeah. There's a lot of strong opinions on this subject. Uh, I'd be happy to hear any listener's opinion. Uh, hit me or Jay up on Twitter. Uh, let us know what you think. Jay, this has been an awesome conversation. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for playing injured today. It yeah, I mean, really I shows your dedication. It sounded like I've been eating gravel for a couple of, <laughs> couple of months, but... Uh... 
but it, it, it's been an honor, and, and I'm telling you, I'm not just saying this. You are dynamite at this. This is by far my favorite thing to listen to, your podcast. Oh, well, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vertical Podcast with JJ Reddick. I'd really like to thank today's guest, Jay Billis. Remember to subscribe and listen to new and archived episodes wherever you listen to the podcast. And be sure to subscribe to the Vertical Podcast with Woj and the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and you can now hear the Vertical Podcast Network every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio on Sirius Channel 214, XM Channel 203, and on the Sirius XM app on Channel 967. My podcast airs on Sirius XM every Monday and Thursday, the Vertical Podcast with Chris Mannix every Tuesday, and the Vertical Podcast with Woj every Wednesday and Friday. You can always tweet me at JJ Reddick for any questions and comments. I'd also like to thank our sponsors, European Watch Company, Blue Apron, Indochino, and SeatGeek. Be sure to support them the way they support us here at the Vertical Podcast. I'll catch you next week. This has been a digital media production. Find your voice.